All right, cool. Back again. This time to talk about the introduction to generic sciences uh, by François Larouel, um, who I am just learning about for the first time. Uh, so, Jeremy, I guess you introduce yourself again in case someone was like, yeah. I, I know some reading on philosophy. And, and like, yeah. So. Uh, my name is Jeremy R. Smith. I'm a PhD student at uh, Western University in uh, London, Ontario. Um, uh, I study at the Theory Center, um, and uh, my research interests are in uh, the work of Laura Well uh, and its relationship to um, political theory uh, throughout his entire oeuvre. Um, I recently made a bootleg version of Introduction to Generic Sciences um, for the low cost of zero dollars <laughs> yeah. um, that you can probably search for online if necessary. Um, I could always send out a copy of the PDF or the uh, ebook version of it, um, Word document, whatever. Uh, basically, it's a non-standard translation, you know, like something that... Uh, I feel is kind of hindering a lot of the um, access to a lot of this work in the first place, uh, mainly because academic texts are like, what, uh, $25 per book. Uh, so this one, uh, which came out to be like uh, 20 euros originally, um, I've given it for free, got permission to do it. Um, and. Uh, if you're Canadian, uh, the art style of the cover is based off of a very popular uh, supermarket chain that I am withholding the name of, <laughs> but uh, it is based off of their so-called generic brand. Um, and instead of naming it, I've made it uh, something that is without borders or no borders. On the uh, the aspect of a uh, non philosophe sans frontier, some sort of like uh, envisioned goal of what what is non philosophy like in this current age? Or like, uh, um, what is it from Metal Gear? Yeah, uh, <laughs> Militaire sans frontier. Right. Yeah, yeah MSF. It's also médecin um, uh, médecin. Yeah, sans doctors, without, doctors borders. without borders. So so uh, like the notion of without borders kind of like implies this sort of. Uh, 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 a way of transforming how we do this kind of work in the first place um, without borders in academia, without borders in uh, uh, yeah, francophone, anglophone kind of like um, aspects and also to kind of like iterate that there is uh, uh, it's not a perfect translation it's not a standard one, it's something that like people could build upon so um, Introduction to the Generic Sciences uh, 2008, it's uh, that's when it came out originally and over 10 years old now uh as old as the reception of laura well that has been the case for um you know contemporary theory speculative realism all that kind of stuff but not a lot of um uh, secondary readers look to kind of uh, uh, uh interpret this kind of work in a, in a very political light or try to uh, emphasize this political thing and I've been trying to work through that. I've been trying to kind of like think through a politics of invention through his work. So 
um, by making this book available and um, free and ebook form and also something that could be edited you know I don't think that like I, I own that I don't own that I yeah you know I I think that if this is available and all that we we, we can have a discussion and move it forward you know um, so there's a lot we can discuss for this book it's um, originally 140 pages long you know um, but I've sized it down to uh, 46 pages or so uh, in English and thanks to font size but also thanks to yeah, the amount of space uh, that you have on a page they're big pages yeah <laughs> so you have a lot to kind of sparse, uh, parse your through but I mean like even then um, it is a little bit unreadable. I don't have like any classical training in ebook publishing or anything like that. So yeah. uh, this is kind of like my first forte in that. So um, we have a lot to discuss as far as things go. So yeah. So let's hop right into it. And yeah. qu- quite simply, uh, what is a generic science? Mm. And if you have to start by saying you're defining what a science is, that's fine. Uh, <laughs> or what a generic is, that's okay. fine. So. Um, Generic, um, on the very first page of this book, he calls it a type of sufficiently neutral sciences or cognitions or knowledges that are deprived of particularity. So something that, like, has a limited scope, deprived of its kind of, like, power in the first place. Something that is, like, uh, later on he would remark as being uh, uh, marked down or unbranded something that has kind of lost its proper name uh, on the one hand. On the other, there's also an, uh, a mathematical concept of the generic, which is kind of like uh, a stand-in, something that is kind of like used to um, have uh, a cooperative kind of manner in, in, in an equation or anything like that. So it's kind of, it's a weak but yet profound kind of concept. Um, a generic science, though, are things that are completely removed of this sort of sufficiency and spontaneity of science in the first place. So science has both its like empirical, uh, positive, and uh, spontaneous kind of conception of it of itself, like microscopes and all these other things, you know, <laughs> sure. uh, flasks and yeah. chemicals. But there's also like the the scientific method, um, and a lot of uh, methods have been utilized uh, throughout uh, um, the history of science, paradigm shifts, and everything like that, changes in norms and uh, normalizations of how one does a method in the first place. Um, this is Kuhn, um, and a lot of it is uh, meant to be in a generic science to be something of a uh, of a method that is not going to be a, a paradigm shift. It's meant to be a change of, uh, of approach to how one performs a science in the first place. So it's, it's meant to be uh, transformative of how one conceives of science in the first place and how one does science in another. Um, and it is supposed to be a deprivation of spontaneity 
and sufficiency. So if uh, you're not familiar with Larwell's work, sufficiency is a bad thing, um, <laughs> uh, which is kind of like an auto-enclosing force saying that it's able to speak for itself and not and critique itself and deconstruct itself and all these other things. But really, it's only what philosophy thinks of itself. It kind of repeats the vicious circle of itself. But spontaneity, um, this comes from Althusser, um, there's the spontaneity of science, um, which is related to um, kind of just the, the, the image that scientists think of what the scientific method is in the first place, or how scientists view themselves as uh, better than philosophers. Uh, but this is meant to be holding them in suspense. Uh, both spontaneity and sufficiency are held in suspense. Um, and on top of that as well, positivity. Um, so things like experimentation are at the forefront of this. And generic sciences for Larwell is meant to be this sort of experiment within both philosophy and science, uh, specifically with epistemology and different types of knowledges in the first place. Right. And so does the does generic science kind of, and I'm, I'm just going to use this term just for the sake just for using it, uh, infiltrate philosophy, and is it like something that catalyzes the emergence of non-philosophy? <laughs> I think that um, non-philosophy is a type of generic science. Okay. I think that um, uh, the 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 notion of a generic science, um, the notion of a non-philosophy first. This is something that uh, in the previous discussion, Laura Well has been working on for forty years, over forty years. And um, the, the situation that um, comes up here in this book is not so much about non-philosophy, but how does one use non-philosophy to develop these kinds of notions of a generic science in the first place? Um, non-philosophy being one of these kinds of things. Um, so uh, what I mean here is that uh, a generic science is something that is uh, a problematic concept, uh, mainly because we have a lot of uh, um, different types of approaches towards like reaching a consensus between uh, sciences and philosophy. Um, the, this whole notion of a um, uh, epistemological soup is what he calls it. Right. Or um, and this might <clears throat> serve as a uh, um, um, a sort of controversial term, but he refers to it as a miscegenation of cognitions or métissage de connaissance, métissage or miscegenation being like a mixture. Yeah. And, um, and he's not meant to be like saying that this is a good thing or a bad thing, but interdisciplinary work kind of leads this miscegenation to be a case where it's yeah. like you make things compatible when really they don't work out the way right they, it's they kind work. of like a cosmopolitanism like some you know yeah leftist multicultural like bs yeah so it's very superficial and uh a lot of this is also related to um uh, a postmodern turn in a lot of uh different approaches that he's kind of commenting on um and this is uh, this is kind of like a, 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 
a, a new problem for Laurel where it's like we want for more work to be done between these different regions, but really what ends up being the case is a lot of this naive, spontaneous attempts to make things work when they don't. And we have to observe how how they could work. Okay. Um, and this generic science is meant to be the case. Um, and furthermore, um, this book is meant to be a kind of uh, stepping stone, a stepping stool for like a, a, a new kind of take on Laurel's work, which he calls non-standard philosophy, um, which is somewhat distinct from non-philosophy, but it's meant to be implying um, more of a non-standardized usage of philosophy um, to do philosophy without being a philosopher. Right. Yeah. So um, it gives a little bit more. Uh, uh, liberty to, to do this kind of work in the first place um, but uh, generic sciences are in essence two different types of things one is meant to be uh, the removal of it as a predicate but rather as a constant something that is within all these different types of disciplines in the first place um, and then it's more about developing a transformation in both of the sciences and philosophy in a way. So uh, this is, you know, uh, not uh, out of the blue for Laura Well. This is kind of like normal for him. Mm-hmm. But I think the uh, the new thing that comes to play here is a lot of the uh, the notions that he would become uh, more noted for nowadays, which is like quantum physics and um, the notion of the generic and all these other things that um, put him side by side with a thinker like Alain Badiou. Right. Um, uh, and um, kind of thinking through this uh, notion of um, a use of uh, science as a materialistic approach. So. Um, whereas Badiou has set theory, Laurel has quantum physics. So these kinds of uh, dynamics are um, all the more very interesting uh, to kind of think through the relationships between science and philosophy in this way. So uh, generic and genericization and all these other things make a way forward to remove the sort of proper names and sort of ways of thinking that kind of limit how one does the work that we have at, at hand. Yeah. So that's yeah. that's what a generic science is. So how does it oppose, or how does it make manifest or present to us the opposition between ideal of science versus ideal science? Mm-hmm. Uh, that is a distinction that he, that he draws. So this is um, very early on in the introduction. Um, and to provide a context to this, um, I'm going to quote from that uh, based off of my translation. Uh, he says, Generic signifies, if not whatever or ordinary, at least sufficiently neutral as a discipline, neutral and general in the exact limits of the generic, to integrate the ideal of science and ideal of philosophy. The ideal? Obviously, it is a question of the ideal of science opposed to the so-called ideal sciences, as is the case with some positive sciences. As to the ideal of philosophy, a formula which exists in reality, even less so than the previous one, is a question of avoiding the philosophical systems, such systems like the so-called ideal philosophy, 
and to serve sciences as whatever tools of philosophy sample from the different systems of thought. In both cases, the ideal is especially not the idea in the platonic sense, even less so a science or a perfect and total thought. It is even better to think of it in terms of the Freudian distinction of the ego ideal and the ideal ego. Um, so this thing that um, Larawell is kind of suggesting here is um, striving towards what is the best end, what is the best usage of uh, science and philosophy, and not so much of like the best state of philosophy. So the ideal of philosophy, the ideal of science in this way, is not meant to be um, uh, a redirection of um, uh, striving towards like the best form of method, the best form of approach, but what is the end? What is the generic end? What are the means to this end um, that this, these kinds of thoughts can come into play for? So um, the kind of dynamic that Laura Well is trying to suggest here is not so much of an idealism, you know, like idealistic philosophy, uh, you know, striving for um, one that is all about the ideas uh, and not the material reality, but rather starting from the material to reach to this ideal state. So it's kind of a relationship which we brought up um, in the previous kind of discussion of uh, non-philosophy and materialism, but this one kind of le leaps, uh, has like a leap of faith in a way, uh, but a quantum leap yeah, of yeah, faith yeah, sure. uh, to, uh, to kind of reach an ideal which has more of the generic in mind than it, do uh, than it does of the actual discipline in mind. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a transformation, as it were, uh, a mutation of how that course should be directed in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. So for him, he, he calls it a science thought, mm -hmm. right? I think. Um, mm -hmm. And how does that relate to what he calls intervening factor equals X? <laughs> is it like that? That is what he defines or is that how he characterizes generic science as being an intervening factor mm -hmm. in something else? Well, the, um, the generic, um, so later on in this book, he determines between an undervening force and an intervening. Um, so, and intervening or like intervening in a way that like is is constant as opposed to like a predicate so sure. the generic obviously has been treated in terms of like a predicate so it's been used as like an additive kind of concept to add to in front of uh, a noun or anything like that mm -hmm. as opposed to something that constantly appears throughout um, all these different kinds of uh, usage usages in the first place so, um, in intervening equals X, uh, intervening a f force equals X. A factor. A factor, yeah. So this is kind of like um, what kind of appears or makes itself manifest throughout these kinds of it, like different uh, iterations of thought. Um, in the previous kind of discussion, we were talking about like algorithms a little bit, but like, you know, like, or the Turing machine. So it's, it's picking up this sort of, uh, elements of, uh, where does this appear? Where does this like kind of manifest itself? Where does it, where does it actually take part? And, um, it's a sort of, um, uh, a way in which, uh, um, the generic 
is actually more active than passive than a lot of people think to be uh, applying it to. Um, and that it plays into a relationship with Marxism. Uh, it plays into a relationship with um, mathematics and and uh, sciences and everything like that, which Bajiu has observed at great length in the Manifesto for Philosophy. But uh, the difference here is that a science thought is not so much one that is kind of geared towards set theory. Uh, he remarks uh, in the first chapter of this book, he says, like, you know, philosopher like Bajiu, uh, he relies on the text of set theory when there's like thousands and thousands of different types of sciences, like results that come out every year. Yeah. So it's like, I get the, the, the jab there, you know, set theory is a thing has been like a century old, a little bit over yeah. a century old kind of factor, but it's, uh, 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 it's old. It's, it's not caught up to date. It's, and it, and it shows that like this sort of like catching up to date and like making sure that thought is caught up to date to kind of, move past the sorts of boundaries that have been put in place in the first place. Um, uh, so a lot of this is seeking to transform, uh, you know, like make a new way for uh, what we could do for thought in the first place. So um, yeah. as an intervening force, uh, the generic is kind of like uh, um, a, a neutral component that kind of infiltrates uh that is already in there, you know, it's imminent, it's radically imminent, um, but it's not constitutive of the thing that it's being described into. Yeah. So it's it's something that like relates to uh, a lot of the principles that non-philosophy has kind of sought to in the first place. How does one think radical imminence? How does one think the one? Right. All these kinds of things in the first place. So there's a lot of that here. And I think that propels us pretty well into the first chapter mm -hmm. titled uh, for philosophical research, what what, what mm -hmm. is it on philosophical research? Towards toward, philosophical research. Towards philosophical research. Yeah. Um, thinking about the kind of opposition that's been kind of classically um, thought about mm -hmm. science and philosophy. Mm -hmm. These two things are separate, or when they're brought together in a kind of simple way, like mm -hmm. what I will uh, maybe naively say of the analytic tradition <laughs> using using like science or mathematics or something mm -hmm. to try to justify like logical theorems or some crap like that um, yeah which is all fine yeah it's not crap but yeah uh thinking about this in a totally different way uh, one obviously um i guess influenced by the continental tradition and mm -hmm. air quotes uh but thinking about this not in terms or what I guess a generic science wouldn't be one determined by a kind of dualist approach, mm -hmm. but it is one that is guided by the logic of the one, yeah. as is so consistent with non-philosophy. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's my kind of preamble to this chapter. Yeah. <laughs> Before getting into world research and yeah. whatever the hell that means. And yes. So on and so forth. Yeah. So here um, in this chapter, he's trying to treat science and philosophy as identical to each other. Um, and this is not at all related to like a logical identity like yep. you know um it's rather related to the notion of an identity that is held in suspense um yeah. equalization um mm -hmm. uh and through the notion of a unilateral duality that kind of comes into play here so um uh, in the previous kind of conversation we've had um a unilateral duality 
uh, is based off of a unilateral causality, which is irreversible. It is not of the four forms, uh, four types of uh, causes that Aristotle kind of comes up with. Uh, uh, those are the present causes, uh, and then it's not an absent cause, like in Althusser and Lacan, um, but it's kind of uh, a, a sort of indeterminate kind of causality. Um, but here it's uh, treated in a way of uh, framing the sort of um, uh, understanding of how science is uh, always determined by philosophy and philosophy is always seen as this uh, capital of thought uh, when it comes to whether or not this is a French thing in general like, sure, you yeah. know, um, uh, or uh, a, a rather cultural kind of like phenomenon um, wherein people are reliant on the philosophical tradition to develop their scientific principles in the first place. Yeah. So um, uh, Laura will remark that it's um, research, uh, he says, uh, seems an eminently philosophical concept ever since Platonic questioning and metaphysics as sought science, inciting Aristotle in that way. So it's meant to be um, a, a transition in uh, a research. Uh, previously, uh, you know, in the other discussion, we we um, we said that um, uh, it's not um, philosophy as rigorous science, but science as rigorous philosophy. So that yeah. there's a sort of mimetic, uh, you know, doubling, cloning of what one does and why non-philosophy looks like philosophy or why does it look like this and not that and so on and so forth. So there's a kind of questioning um, that comes into play with the notion of a research model um, and uh, a research method and all these other things that kind of play into that um, for um, this dynamic between science and philosophy. Uh, not to treat them as uh, uh, um, twins that are dueling each other to seek supremacy over one another, but rather to, to kind of like um, uh, uh, reduce them to these kinds of uh, different modes of the real, modes of the one that are kind of like uh, symptomatic of what the real does. Yeah. You know, this kind of causality that is irreversible. It's It's just constantly emanating it's it's what is lived you mm -hmm. know um so <clears throat> to kind of put this into perspective um the uh <coughs> excuse me the the sort of uh dynamic here is um uh to not think of uh a philosophy of science um, as would end up in the case of an epistemology, but a science of philosophy, yeah. which leads to a non-epistemology, mm -hmm. so or a non-standard epistemology. So um, we can continue going on, um, but I think that 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 could suffice as a way of, um, of framing this sort of uh, a dynamic between like the grand narratives that still persist in the philosophy of sciences. Yeah. Um, and there's a wonderful quote, uh, quote here um, that he says, uh, philosophy assumes that there is a topology of sciences, a cartography of disciplines and continents, an archaeology of knowledges. It is an immense effort to lay science on this bed of Procrustes that is philosophy and in the coffin of history. 
to reduce knowledges to disciplines as distinct though which they exceed and Lauderwell um, says that he's a pirate a corsair navigating these kinds of territories and just saying you know let's smuggle them let's uh, you know participate in this uh, international commerce uh, of knowledges and try to kind of change the course of where this is going this is where it's leading to the ideal of science the ideal of philosophy what is it for yeah in the first place yeah so in this perhaps not in that process exactly but in this chapter he also gets into the um the becoming world Mm -hmm. or what that necessarily implies where he says that there are two components and we were kind of setting the stage for what one might assume to be kind of dialectical encounter. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they don't synthesize mm-hmm. in a very neat way. No. Uh, they, if I understand it correctly, mm-hmm. these terms kind of maybe collide, maybe they don't, mm-hmm. where one of the terms kind of floats above the other in a way that is mutually accepted by the two, but then that kind of transcendence mm-hmm. then gives it a kind of a third position. Mm-hmm. What... I think he would call an imminence, but maybe not. Um, that turns this this kind of new scheme into, or that that to be what I understand the birth of the becoming world, or I dare I say the real. Mm. All right, so it's setting that. First of all, how many things have I gotten wrong with that, <laughs> and how how do we correct them to keep going into like world research? Okay, so let's set you back on the right path here. Um, and you're on to something, but not there yet. So the, um, there's the becoming world of philosophy okay. and the becoming philosophy of the world. This is something that is in the 1844 manuscripts by Marx, sure. uh, where he's talking about how alienation, um, you know, the existence of alienation is a constant um, uh, formation of a species being in the first place. Um, and this sort of uh, dynamic between a becoming world and a becoming philosophy, a becoming world of philosophy and becoming philosophy of the world is meant to be like this reflection on, um, I believe, uh, Hegel's kind of influence over, um, how the world kind of functions in, uh, German thought as well as like, uh, the, the, the kind of, um, the potential for how that could uh, lead to um, both a positive and negative aspect to that. Um, so I think that Laurel is playing into this positive and negative aspect to it, um, uh, mainly because uh, becoming world of philosophy means um, the inseparability of philosophy from the world, and then becoming philosophy of the world implies the sort of like. Uh, how the world is becoming nothing but philosophical. Sure. So um, the uh, kind of dynamic that Laurel is searching here is that kind of relationship uh, with those two becomings, uh, with that of the um, the the notion of a, a, a world research, um, right? Uh, the uh, a worlding or mondialization of research, um, which is basically. Um, a symptom of how scientific research has become uh, predominantly subject to capitalist and liberal kind of like um, exploitation and kinds of uh, domains of um, 
how that kind of knowledge uh, institutes itself, um, where uh, researchers are harassed by R and D or kind yeah. of like mm-hmm. all these different uh, 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 her, uh, like developments and technology that could be used against other humans in the first place or means of defense or whatever, you know, like uh, there's a sort of dynamic of how that knowledge in the first place also becomes much more payable. Um, you know, for instance, like, uh, um, like in America, we have uh, Lockheed Martin, you know, sure. well, one of yeah. the biggest suppliers of, uh, you know, uh, weapons in the U.S. And uh-huh. that is probably going to get paid more by the government than research that would go towards developing uh, like a treatment for cancer or anything like that. <laughs> yeah. So we have that kind of dynamic of how um, researchers are subject to this kind of harassment by the expectation of capital, the expectation of the world to kind of like lead to this financialization, as it were. So um, can I ask, Yes, is world research always um, kind of in bed with the flows of capital in a kind of globalized world or is there like a kind of possibility for Larwell to or that he sees in it to I guess emancipate itself from that yeah so it's it's twofold so one of them is like um you know there's a there's a, a like a set up marketplace for all these different types of research being um raised up to importance for capital yeah um and it's it's more a question of how uh, you know there's a lot of tendential kind of components to this. Um, there's a sort of uh, like what he calls an all, yeah, the all mm-hmm. uh, or the overall, uh, which is kind of this. Uh, a, 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 you know, we could use this in terms of a totalization or anything like that, but. Really, what this means is like uh, the the, um, the binary and the duality of the one and the two, yeah. or the one and the many, and also um, the uh, many forms of how um, sort of this uh, this <clears throat> excuse me this sort of uh, dynamic is more provisional than it is like a be and a be all and all kind of s- yeah. s- s- uh, situation. So the, um, uh, the problem that Laura well is kind of, uh, kind of addressing here is how, um, you know, science is definitely in bed with philosophy in a way that like its methods are drawn particularly from philosophy, but do come to different results. Whereas philosophy has been implemented without its willing, to some extent, by the world and by capital and by all these other things. And whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing is, you know, uh, Laura Wells' kind of question. Um, because it's it's meant to be um, a change of how research is done in the first place. Um, and like there are several theses that he addresses on world research here world research being you know a, a recognition that research has become a world of its own that it has become like um uh re-territorialized uh, to use a delizian guatarian term uh by capital um to kind of like 
build more products for whatever reason would benefit capital in yep. that place. So um, it's it's um, it's a way of developing a new form of research from these kinds of approaches. If we recognize that this is in bed with like philosophical research on the one hand and world domination or the hated image of the world in a sort of like Gnosticism, as sure. it were, um, this sort of uh, how does one save the world from the world itself mm-hmm. is is what the, the forte is for this. And that's something that Larwell picks up uh, throughout his work. Uh, and he says that this is nothing different from science fiction, you know. How, how does one save humanity from itself, you know? Uh, so this is this is kind of in, in a way of thinking that um, practically, yeah, and, and not so much theoretically in a way. So how does uh, because the idea of sufficiency plays a big part in that, especially when we ha- you have the idea presented where it's almost like research for research's sake, <laughs> or research for capital's sake, or research for growth's sake. Um, I feel like we have entered here, or what becomes entered is the that idea of sufficiency that he is so uh, cautious of or so suspicious of mm-hmm. where he gives us this idea that we must in a sense sterilize the sufficiency from mm-hmm. research mm-hmm. like to try and get make science great again <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, I couldn't resist I couldn't resist I couldn't I couldn't well, as resist. an American I highly I, I, I think that this is not what this is not what he had in mind no uh, no um it's not a matter of making science great again. I, I, I no, um, I know that that that's something you couldn't resist. Or it? could I frame it in another way? Mm. Has science ever been the way that he thinks it could, it, it like could be, mm. or is it still on the horizon? I think uh, so. I don't think that science has ever had a talos. Yeah, I think that yep. uh, uh, a lot of this is kind of like. Um, you know, he rejects having a telos in the first place, and I think that like um, uh, making sure that we have a, you know a destiny, an end to things um, is not necessarily what he has in mind. But it's like the ideal to return to that kind of moment for like for a second. Um, he um, he is looking to. Uh, mm, Remove the sort of uh, like this the sufficiency and the overtotalization of that kind of thought in the first place, and how it kind of plays into um, uh, delocalization and everything like that. Like a removal of um, uh, a, a globalizing force of how knowledge is kind of come into play. Yeah, um, and so this is kind of like a new political economy uh, that a lot of people have addressed in their own work nowadays um uh like for instance um thinking of like uh boltansky and chiapello uh, new spirit of capital Uh, i don't know it's it's a way of like framing um how um neoliberalism function it's like it's an analysis from sociologists that kind of look at that a little bit more in depth yeah um but here um the sort of uh um, dynamic that I think that Laura Wells kind of like uh, tending towards is um, uh, whew, like 
a, a new new kind of like um, practice of kind of things um, he's saying about computers in particular here um, how the in the machinery park of world research this is like a thesis 10 of this uh, computer has the primacy as material and intellectual productive force while information has the primacy in the relations of production so this yeah. is Marxist lingo um, the computer has displaced philosophical functions which are not immediately recognizable it is endowed with a power of synthesis connection and communication interface and exchange properly philosophical worldifying and he, he remarks that Hegel is dead but replaced by the calculator <laughs> so it's kind of like um, you know this sort of uh, technological advancements that a lot of thought has not caught up to in the first place um, and it, it, it kind of it, it's, it's kind of alienating you know like if you're not able to catch up with the technology that's being produced what kind of thought could be uh, not competing with that but working cooperatively with that in yeah. a way um, it reminds me of the concept that he uh, introduced a long time ago in contrast with the dialectical uh, dialectical materialism uh, that he called machinic materialism um, and this is something that's from like uh, his early writings in 1978 where he's talking about like um how thought must catch up to the pace of like how all these thoughts are moving at an accelerated pace. Yeah. And if we are not able to catch up to that, we have to either uh, cut it off before it goes further or build up new fortifications by these types of new things in the first place. Yeah. Um, and that's what I think he's trying to do, like to recognize that there is an alternative when, there, when we're told that there is none. Yeah. So, I don't know if that really answers your question. No, no, I think it does. Yeah. Uh, it it gets to the heart of it because um, when we try to imagine something like a science thought mm-hmm. or a or a kind of mix of science and philosophy that isn't appropriative of one appropriating the other, mm-hmm. um, I think that you know the best way that, that we can frame it is, I think, in in a sense, the way you just did. Mm-hmm. Like it's always something that it's coming. Mm-hmm. It's coming, or as you are imagining this as far as your own research goes, politics of invention, mm-hmm. something that, you know, we have to, in a sense, get a little creative about, yeah. perhaps even a little bit wacky uh, <laughs> to get there. Mm-hmm. So I think in that way, uh, we have to be content with not getting like a straight answer, because mm-hmm. we're not going to find, you know, I can't say for sure, but I don't think we're going to find an answer in Larwell. He's no. giving us the tools to... You know, build the house. He doesn't give us a house, mm-hmm. so to speak, yeah. or a bungalow. Yeah, a bungalow. <laughs> um, so, who is this person? And what I mean by that is, who is the generic subject of science? Are they like the stranger mm-hmm. that we get in the other text, the summary of non philosophy, the person that exists on the margins, perhaps even outside the margins, yeah. to maybe reveal the uh, limits to the supposed totalizing knowledge or the t- self belief of totalization that mm-hmm. philosophy or science kind of embodies mm-hmm. to show that you know what in fact there's a lot that exists outside of your own domain mm-hmm. you can't account for everything is that what this generic subject of science is doing well the thing is there's a lot of distinctions that he brings up in this book there's like the generic subject or the generic human there's man in person 
and then there's also the stranger subject and the subject and the in person are distinct yeah so it, it suffices to say that there is a sort of um, uh, distinction uh, between the in person and the subject that I, I guess I can address here um, and this kind of plays into a unilateral duality again um, so the thing is he says that there is in essence an existence but philosophy is existence and science is the essence um, but these terms are also lost of their philosophical kind of connotation in the first place. And I think it has something to do with how existence is in the world appearance, all these things that are manifest already, you know, whereas essence is kind of like this mystical kind of like voidy, you know, uh, un unintelligible, unsignifying, unable to be like perceived kind of thing yeah so science in this way plays not so much like a primacy or anything like that but it is the thing that um is uh sort of the way in which he says is how theory should operate so the relations between science and philosophy are overdetermined by science at this way like it's a new form of overdetermination of how thought gets operated for him as opposed to philosophy being the overdetermination or contradiction and overdetermination all these different types of overdeterminations that render um, how thought should be directed in the first place so um, the the um, the thing that I, I guess uh, comes to mind with this subject positions and everything like that um, plays, again, science and philosophy are the two identical kind of components. They're, they're identipotent, they're equalized and losing their kind of primacy over each other. So the in-person is kind of uh, the immediacy that not every philosophy wants to admit they can't catch. You know, like the the instance of a snap, you can't capture like that one moment. Yeah. So, in person is like in flesh and blood, in, in imminence, like radical imminence. The thing that like is direct but indirect at the same time. Mm -hmm. So, it's impossible to capture that in a philosophical lens. But existence, the subject is kind of like this is. The doing, the acting, the 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 obvious kind of like perception of of how that action gets into the world. So it is an existent, not an existence. So yeah. like there's a sort of um, uh, dynamic that Laurel says in a biography of ordinary man between these like three stages between essence, existence, and the existent being in the middle, and that like man is this existent, this mystical living being that does not exist and is in between essence yeah so it's um if i paraphrase correctly i don't I don't remember the book off the top of my head but i believe that there's an ex the existent kind of component of the subject in this way to go back to your question though the generic subject um i think it's 
the notion of generic uh, generic man uh, more so in the sense of like um, uh, 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 related to Feuerbach's notion of like uh, species being yeah um, and it, it, it's um, related to this like uh, ordinary person uh, but not ordinary in like kind of like Oh, everyday kind of Joe Schmo kind of person, but really, what makes them actively able to change the world that they are participating in? Yeah, and that's that's what the component is. Like you know, there's a collective action that every generic person in this world can take a part apart mm-hmm. uh, apart in. Um, but it's not to like constitute a subject of the world. Like so, it is a bracketed subject. Yeah. as it were like yeah. somebody that's like in between um, or holds the power of suspending their own sufficiency uh, the power to remove the sort of uh, uh, hatred that the world has castigated on them like the harassment and everything like that that comes with that territory exploitation and everything like that Yeah. so um, are we all capable of that I have no answer I yeah, think, you know, like <laughs> I think that I think that uh, when when it comes to it, uh, uh, we can recognize um, the the power that uh, a lot of us have for inventing um, new ways of being, new ways of thinking, and everything like that. So, the generic subject is kind of that person. Yeah, and I think that that propels us then yeah. into the second chapter because <laughs> mm-hmm. that. We're going to deal more with this idea of the stranger here, mm-hmm. but also this this subject. Mm-hmm. The second chapter being the uh, generic as predicate and constant. Um, a friend of mine, uh, Taylor Adkins, originally uh, translated this chapter um, and a couple of other chapters from this book um, in uh, uh, the speculative turn that edited volume with like uh, Levi Bryant. Um, Nick Chernyshek and Graham Harmon, I think, but it, it was like um, there were a few a few things that I picked up on that translation that I kind of addressed in this one. There's a lot of uh, differences between mine and Taylor's, and um, I think that uh, this is also a question of whether or not we want to lump Larwell into this kind of category of speculative realism, you know. Uh, so this this uh, this chapter. Uh, chapter two, generic as predicate and constant. It's a very long chapter. I think it's the longest chapter in the whole entire book. I think so. Uh, yeah, um, and it kind of recognizes the uh, the sort of tradition, and I'm putting that in scare quotes um, uh, uh, of non philosophy uh, from Feuerbach onwards. You know, um, it's he recognizes that there's a sort of um, a symptom that is throughout this sort of uh, dynamic uh, the symptom being the generic like what are the symptomatic effects of the generic throughout these things um, so there are several different kinds of uh, approaches that are here um, in this chapter but I'd like to hear what you want to like ask for this well okay first of all um he says that the non-philosophy, mm-hmm. uh, I guess in this way, related to the generic sciences, mm-hmm. is for him much more oriented toward a kind of 
Marxist or minoritarian effort against what he calls systematic reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and is that is that fair to you? A fair characterization? Yeah, yeah that's a fair characterization. Um, so, in that way, he wants to try it. If I understand it correctly, he wants generic sciences not to be, you know, belong to some kind of like fairy dust, transcendent plane, but to actually be kind of wedded to the societal, maybe epistemic factors mm-hmm. that it bears witness to, or that it that it kind of is located within. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Is mm. that fair? <laughs> so yeah, so those are the two sources. Um, I. You know, we spoke about a little bit of the first one, which was like, you know, Feuerbach and onward. Um, Feuerbach being one of the first thinkers to um, conceive of non-philosophy um, in a different way, though. Okay. Um, but like obviously matured and differentiated by uh, Laruel. Because um, he's not overly satisfied, if I understand correctly, with Feuerbach's kind of characterization yeah. of man or... Yes, yeah, there's a sort of uh, religious and uh, humanist kind of approach to the uh, the notion of man here, uh, or naturalist reversal of Hegel is what he's calling it. So, um, it's it's not so much of a, a you know a humanist approach in Laruel. I think that when we conceive of humanism as more of a philosophy you know over time and it's a very uh racially coded kind of like language in the first place very culturally based humanism um and this is something that also he shares with like a conviction with uh Althusser on like a critique of marx and the way that marx had a break as it were even though Lauderwell would disagree with this break uh but there's the humanist marx and then there's the uh, the very anti-humanist marks right the but, manuscripts and yeah then, and whatever comes after yeah but that break is kind of superficial i think um then um the second source as you noted is societal and epistemological you know um it, the description here that he gives is, has a twofold for the epistemological account or societal account. One is that he says, uh, well, threefold actually. Um, it has no vocation to be posed as global or fundamental, foundational for others like mathematics can can pretend to be, or else as reductive of others like physics and physicalism. Um, the second being that it's uh, valid for the domain of singular specific objects for which it has been elaborated. Uh, it can support cognitions which remain local within another. So like sharing um, the locality of science and philosophy with each other. And then the third one being it doesn't form a new synthesis or a miscegenation with another or a combination of a superior degree. So it's looking to... Um, uh, like a convenience uh, or marking down or unbranding of a kind of thought in the first place. How does something just become blah, you know, yeah. not unique anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but the only time that um, I think uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's kind of like a, a critique of um, both Bajiu and Deleuze in a way, like where Bajiu prefers the set theoretical approach to the generic um, Deleuze would be more inclined to find the remarkable, the interesting, the uh, the satisfying, the things that are 
looking to invest our time and our energy in things. But this is kind of like a holding in suspense or even more of like a, a, a conjugation of the two mm-hmm. uh, where it's like, yeah, there's the generic and other types of sciences, but it doesn't have, we, w- we need to take the mundane along with the interesting. We yep. need to like take everything as material. Uh, yeah. Even if it's like gray literature, as he calls it, like, you know, something completely boring or just like, you know, uh, nothing, you know, like uselessness. What is this for? There is going to be a use for something that is useless in some way, uh, but not in like a one man's trash is another's treasure kind of way, but more of like, how does one use this material towards like developing a better thought? Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, the generic here goes through various stages and the two it's a new combination of the the two symptom sources that he's talking about one being um man coming from philosophy and the subject or the object coming from science they're both transformed something like the identity of the human average the ordinary man in his works particularly scientific works so there is a sort of privileging of scientific works over philosophical ones in this moment, but there, sure. there, there, there is a component to like how how does thought in general become generic? Yeah, is, is more of my interest in this way. So, um, it's it's a means to like not even end up in a commodification of thought as well. It's to, trying to, to destroy that as well. Yeah, think, you know. But at the same time, I I feel like his. And I feel like he says this, his whole um, project around the non, Mm -hmm. or rendering things non, is not in favor of destroying a system, but of transforming it, in a sense. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I don't know if you think that that's fair. Well, it it is, so there is two things to this. This destroying the sufficiency, but making sure that the the whole entire thing is still intact. Yeah, sure. Like, um... It, it, it favors a sort of plurality of things. So in uh, philosophy and non-philosophy, he says that non-philosophy is not a negation of philosophy. It's not its destruction. It's just it's like kind of leading anew to a new uh, type of thought, thinking yeah. philosophy otherwise. Yeah. So, which is the subtitle to that book in French, which unfortunately did not make it to the English translation, but it's it's what it is for... Uh, how people are pedagogically introduced to this sort of uh, method in the first place. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. Yeah. So then we get three... He gives us three axioms, Mm -hmm. right? And these three axioms pertain to uh, the project of generic science. Mm -hmm. uh, That is, um, he wants to... The first axiom is him creating a distinction between uh, Feuerbachian man... Mm -hmm. And supplanting that with what he calls man in person, mm-hmm. uh, or I have in brackets one in person mm-hmm. as uh, kind of the the base of the universal or the generic form of all systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, is, is that fair? <laughs> uh, so okay, generic man, and then man in person. How is that distinguished? Is that what you're more or less asking, or? Or is it fair to say that these two are the same things? Like the generic man, man in person, one mm-hmm. in person is the same thing. And are they um, kind of what guides all systems in their universality? Um, so one way of putting this is saying yes. 
but also to recognize that as sort of um, dynamic that uh, was brought up or a little bit earlier, uh, either both in this conversation and in the latter one, um, about the determination of last instance and how um, it's not that man is determined by philosophy, but man determines philosophy in the last instance. But it's not meant meant to be like a condition of possibility, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and it's related to um, Marx and Engels' notion uh, that they say in the German ideology that uh, life does not depend on consciousness, but consciousness on life. So this kind of um, distinction, I, I think, um, between man and person, and um, uh, you know. The generic subject or uh, uh, generic person, one in person, and all these other things, kind of is the same thing. They're all they're, they're all generic, you know. Like they they all share the same uh, quality to each other, um, and more importantly, um, Feuerbach's man was humanist and naturalist and everything like that. But the the approach to breaking from that sort of uh, dynamic and not treating man in in an equation with humanism or you know like what I said earlier about like how it's related to like cultural racial instances and everything like that it's it's kind of playing into this uh, the essence of man being scientific uh, being indeterminate being um, um, non-definable unintelligible kind of like withdrawn is what I would kind of use as a metaphor here mm-hmm. mainly because it's kind of starting from this impoverished position where there is no answer given to that but his existence is philosophical like his his uh, man's life is nothing but philosophical thrown into it and everything like that and it's a matter of making his essence and existence cooperate with each other as opposed to one overdetermining the other yeah so that's how I would kind of phrase that subjectivity Sounds sounds good to me, and that and I think that that in a sense brings us to that second axiom, where this man in person must be, he says, almost without subject, mm-hmm. with devoid devoid of subject, mm-hmm. whatever the hell that means. Well, so without subject, that's a very good question. So I think that um, this is the section on uh, identified in addition, sterile of experience, and unilaterality, right? Um, I believe so. Yeah. So, um, the thing is, without subject, this is... um, So, the second axiom rightly poses this operation without substance, which is also without subject. Hegel famously uh, treated the subject as substance. Sure. Um... And substance is distinct from subject in in terms of Aristotelian kind of like approaches, right? So the um, it must be without substance and without subject in a way. So how does one get to this in person, which is the essence of man? Yeah. Uh, the scientific, this indeterminate kind of aspect of things. Uh, it has to be without a subject, without a substance. It has to be this kind of like de-philosophizing, de-growing, de-potentializing the philosophical ways of interpreting how that essence is drawn into the light. Yeah. So that's that's the second axiom as as far as I understand it, at least. 
So that makes sense to me. Okay, <laughs> I, th- I think so. Um, and then how does the third axiom fig- figure in? At least that's how I have it written here. Is it's the uh, it is the generic pro- generic is the product of man and person, mm-hmm. not philosophical authority. Philosophical authority, I assume, being the the absolute thing he's writing against. Yeah. You know that kind of positive science crap. Yeah, spontaneous spontaneity philosophy. and sufficiency and all those other things. So, um, so the thing is, the generic is constant for all the knowledges which are determined in the last instance by man. So. This is a return to kind of like the, the last instance notion that we, we kind of discussed earlier. Um, and the, the thing is, um, it's a matter of thinking of about idempotent imminence um, without distance or without mediation. Um, it's also directed as a unifacial object or a uniject is what he calls it sure. so unifaciality being like just one-sided kind of like on a die or whatever um but thrown into the world but all sharing the same kind of sides as it were yeah um and you know the idempotence that he tries to say is uh kind of like a logical idempotence um Idempotence being how they're all equal power, uh, which we discussed in the previous uh, uh, session. But I think that um, here this also puts into a play of like how one plus one equals one yeah. all the time. Um, once each time, rather, that the all becomes this uh, term that is torn from itself, it becomes a material or a symptom that one needs to move past from as yeah well. yeah so <clears throat> that the generic is found in the all but the all does not determine the generic yeah yeah so or as he says it at another time he says that the generic generic is produced from validity rather than authority mm-hmm. and from truth rather than philosophical scientific or epistemic knowledge mm-hmm. so how because look, I'm wearing a shirt that has Foucault on it. You know, the, my Foucault bells are ringing. Like, okay, what does that look like? How do you get outside of that authoritative type, you know, mm. power knowledge thing? Yeah. So that that's a fun kind of question. Um, power knowledge. Uh, I don't know if I have the answer for you for I that do. one. Yeah. Like the the thing is for me at least, um, the dynamic that he's trying to play into is. Um, What is the, uh, the the line again that you just said? I'm sorry. Uh, it is produced from validity rather, rather than, than authority. Fo- uh, validity from rather truth than... rather than philosophical, scientific, or epistemic knowledge. Okay, so this is where the true without truth comes into play. Yeah, so, yeah, 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 this is where it is. Okay, so um, philosophy and science have their own notions of truth. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, and it the the truth kind of holds this sort of power over how things are interpreted, calculated, and sought to, yeah. rather than validity, which is true or yeah. certainty. You know, the the distinction is to determine the true without the truth being the over encompassing kind of like way in which that is yeah determining that outcome so 
the thing is with power and knowledge anything could be true yeah and also anything could be the truth like as far as i if i read my foucault correctly you know yeah, I mean, what whatever whatever is in power determines what is the truth sure uh so it's not so much about what is truthful or you know like if we're looking at a post-truth world right now for instance yeah uh that's also a symptom of power mm -hmm. not so much a symptom of what is true in the world yeah you know uh we have to determine what is true for us before the truth is determined right i think this is what uh, laura well is kind of arguing in the first place and this is also like a notion of the priority like uh, things that are prior to this kind of philosophical determination mm -hmm. so if we think of what is true before what is truth this kind of plays into a way of uh, preventing us from like reaching these kinds of conclusions that um, limit uh, and also have a cap on who gets to say what in the first place yeah and also to kind of um, play into the, the notions of de facto and de jure mm -hmm. uh, like transform those kinds of uh, uh, ways of uh, understanding fact and legality of the law by right and everything like that so um, there's there's a lot to that that uh, kind of transforms this um, dynamic that I, I think Foucault was right in a very empirical way through a historical lens but this is meant to be without history, without kind of like the empirical being the determining factor in yeah, that way. That makes sense to me. Because mm -hmm. um, how I was reading it personally, this idea of truth without truth, mm -hmm. is a truth that isn't burdened by the kind of shackles of, you know, higher, you know, scientific reason mm -hmm. or something as it's often like associated with. Kind of implying that truth can have so many other possibilities. Mm -hmm. And this isn't just like necessarily um you know suggest some some kind of like basic relativism or crap like that mm -hmm. but just like the way that truth in the terms of maybe affect or something mm -hmm. extends much further than the traditional powerhouses and i use that term mm -hmm. kind of funnily uh how it how they normally determine what truth can look like mm -hmm. And I don't know, this is how I understood it. Yeah. Uh, just for the sake of making it easy to understand, I was like, oh, yeah, I'll just accept that definition. Yeah, <laughs> and if you bring it back to, like, world research, even, in that way, like, how R&D and, like, all these uh, yeah. different types of um, uh, advancements in technology are used in the first place and how their relationships with capital and the government are kind of in play, Yeah. you know? yeah. So I, I would say you're not far off from like a powerhouse kind of <laughs> metaphor right there. Yeah. It's kind of the truth. Yeah. Not to make a further pun right there. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Good point. <laughs> so that'll that'll wrap up the first half for us here uh, at the end of chapter two. And for the next one, we'll go into chapter three, four, and five mm -hmm. to, to round this off. Mm -hmm. So for those that listen this far, stay tuned, because the next one is coming. Uh, I'm going to upload all these at the same time, just so no one's left in suspense. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, for those that listened, you know to leave a comment, do whatever you like. Uh, if we got anything wrong, tell us. Mm -hmm. Any points of clarification, we want to know, because that's what we're doing this. We want to learn. Yeah.
Uh, beyond that note, anything else? You got no. anything? No? No. Cool. All right. See you next time.